Last week was kind of rough. Jesus was a little tough on us. Uh, so I don't think it'll be as bad today, but we're hanging in there. All right, so we're going to continue working through the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Today we'll be doing about the first half of Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn there and read along with us. Now, let me just review, just to remind you, we're really focused. Uh, Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and we're really focused on those. He just All of this kind of refers back to that foundation. So I want to remind you, we call these the eight values that we are to build into our lives. They were humility, uh, mourning over sin, and not just our own, particularly others, sin in the earth, sin in our friends who we love, sin in our uh, people who we don't love but we should love, that kind of thing. Uh, gentleness, righteousness, and not just righteousness as an obligation, righteousness as an internal desire, as a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, cultivating that. Mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, and the fear of God. We'll be talking about that one some today. In the context of persecution, you remember, that we would suffer persecution because we feared God more than we feared men. And so, those were the eight values that you've all been working on since Christmas, building into your lives, and you're getting really good at them now, right? I'll ask your kids later how you're doing with those. Okay, last week we covered the five internal enemies of the eight values, things that because of our sin nature we just have in us that we have to overcome, that Jesus by His Spirit will help us overcome these things that war against developing those eight values in our lives. And they were anger, various lusts, religious performance. We're going to hit that a lot again today, uh, doing things outwardly. Uh, demand for justice, and it's mostly not justice in the earth, but personal justice. I want my justice, you know, that kind of thing. And the right to withhold love. We found out, turns out, we don't have a right to withhold love if we're going to follow Jesus, right? And so, how many of you found that painful? Okay, wow, I thought there'd be more. It hurt me. Okay, well, maybe you're doing better than I am. All right. Anyway, we're going to move on today, starting in Matthew chapter 6. And after looking at the eight values and the five internal enemies of the eight values, Jesus gets into five practices that will cultivate the eight values. Uh, emphasize the word practices. These are not things that we need to just occasionally visit. These are things we need to practice in our lives on a pretty regular basis if we want to develop the eight values. And so if there are five internal enemies that war against the eight values, then these five practices will war against those five internal enemies. In other words, they will war against those things inside us that want to compete with those values. Now, I want to emphasize this, because what you're going to see as we begin to look at these, remember when we were looking at the, uh, the five internal enemies, Jesus continually took it from the outward to the heart issue. He did it again and again and again. We're going to see something similar here, but in these, he continually warns us against doing these things just as religious performance. He does it several times so I want to point that out ahead of time so you'll see it in this passage. It's important that we see that these aren't religious performance practices. These aren't things we do just outwardly. These aren't things we do as some sort of obligation. Well, I pray because I'm obligated to, so I pray half an hour a day because Jesus makes me. You know, that's not what's going on. We have to see these as essential practices that are tools for us to war against our internal enemies and to build and to cultivate these eight values. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, I'm going to beat this drum a lot today because it is so easy to get religious. Uh, everybody, you know, uh, we think that denomination is religious and that denomination thinks this denomination is religious and they think we're all religious. And the truth is we all are because it's so easy in our human nature to get religious to get outward about the things we're doing. Rooted in, there are people watching. And so we're going to talk about that. Now, again, I will 
generalize these a little bit um, for the general principle, not just the very, you know, for example, when we talk about fasting, we won't just talk about fasting, we'll talk about the general principle involved. So let's start. The first one is Matthew 6, 1 through 4, and it is the practice of service, building into our lives the practice of serving one another, serving people, just being a servant, all right? And again, this is a practice. It's more than just, you know, twice a year we have a service project so we can say we served. It is a practice that we're developing in our life so that when the opportunity presents itself, we know how to do it, all right? So Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Get the distinction. We're serving, but we're not doing it to be seen by men. If we do, we don't get a reward. If we don't, if we're doing it just to be seen by the Father, we get a reward. It's pretty simple. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. And I want you to notice it's the most religious people that are violating this, right? Lest we think it's them, not us. Uh, we have to be careful. Uh, so, do not send a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Boy, that's dangerous. Glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. What was their reward? Glory from men. Uh, John 5, Jesus says, how can, you how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from God? So we got to pick. You want glory from God or glory from men? Now, it seems like that might be an easy choice, but uh, I just see a lot of people not making that choice uh, throughout the earth. And so it's probably not as easy as we think. So assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Uh, it just means, you know, don't focus on being aware. Just do it. And that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Okay, so the principle involved here is that we are doing service, but we're doing them for him, for his reward. And let's just be aware that that's going to be the same principle in every one of these. We do this for him, for his reward, not to be seen outwardly. If we do it, to be seen outwardly, that's our reward. I just want to submit to you, Jesus' reward, whatever it is, is better than whatever people are going to give you, okay? doesn't mean, you know, a thank you or somebody giving you a little money is, is bad. It just means our hearts, and again, remember we're talking about our hearts, need to be doing it for God, not for the thank you or for the little bit of money. Now, what I want you to see is that these rewards are based in the choice, are we going to fear God or fear men? See, they wanted glory from men. That is the other side of the coin of the fear of man. And we have to decide, do we want glory from men or glory from God? Now, the reason I'm saying this is because this is probably the biggest area where the church gets hung up is the fear of man. It is, uh, if you look through the Bible, you'll find all kinds of church leaders who made mistakes because they feared the people. Saul comes to mind because they feared the people more than they feared God. They were afraid of what the people would think. Now, you think, okay, well, we've all learned, but I see this all the time. I'm seeing this right now in the church. I'm in, currently involved in a situation where there are, again, not just everyone, leaders. There are leaders in the church that are more concerned about the body at large out there on Facebook or whatever is reacting than how God is reacting. In the name. And they think they're being righteous or religious, and they don't see where the world's crept in. And they, they'll call it social justice or something like that, but it's not biblical. Guys, I'll tell you. Um, I'm interested in your opinions but you need to know, if God has clearly stated his opinion, and I know it, uh, and yours differs from it, I'm going to ignore your opinion. 
I don't care how many of you have it. You understand what I'm saying? That's the difference between the fear of God and the fear of men. And we have to cultivate that. And there are a lot of people out there that are, uh, you know, just going with the sway. What are, what are church leaders saying? What is this thing? What is, and they're redefining things. And, and we're seeing, uh, you know, just all kinds of stuff. Socialism and wokeism and, uh, and uh, psychology creep into theology. We don't need to get that theology from that stuff. We need it from here, from what Jesus said. The reason I'm hitting this is because if we begin to get real concerned about what people are saying and thinking, that will lead to the fear of man, that will lead to compromise, and that will lead to religious performance. We'll start doing things based on what people think of us, not what God thinks of us, and we'll end up just performing as so often uh, the church has. Now, again, I'm not down on the church. I believe in the church. It's his church. The only thing that makes it survive is him. Uh, but we got to watch this. we got to be aware of the traps, and this is a trap. And so uh, I want you to see this, that we serve for him. We have to be very careful that we're not going into doing this for the fear of man. Their reward was from the people. They feared men. They wanted the glory that came from them. Now, he talks about reward, and it's really easy to think of this in terms of, I don't know, a new car, or uh, I don't know how you're hoping Jesus might reward you, and that's fine if he gives you a new car, just say, thank you, Jesus, I like my new car. He does stuff like that. He's very generous. But I don't think that's primarily what's going on here when he talks about our reward. I don't think it's primarily stuff, uh, or more money, or a raise, or whatever. Now, again, he does those things. I'm not saying it's uh, evil to get a raise. Get, get a raise. Yeah? All right. No one's excited about that either. Okay. Uh, what I want you to see is primarily his reward is internal. Does God want to bless you? Yes. But, but his primary goal... This is important. I don't know that we've always realized this as a church. His primary goal is not to bless you in the way some people think. His primary goal is to conform you to his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes that does not look like blessing. Just look at Jesus' life. But it is. And so when he says he has a reward for us for serving unto him, I think it's primarily an internal reward. I think the reward is conformity to Christ. I think the reward is the cultivating of these eight values in our lives. That's the reward. How did, how did I get rewarded for serving? Well, you have more hunger for righteousness. You have more gentleness. You have more purity of heart. Whatever's going on, those things get cultivated through us building the practice of service in our life. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So as we're understanding these, just know I, I kind of spent time on this one. That's going to apply to all these, that same thing. He's, he's trying to conform us to Jesus. He's trying to build these eight values, and so this will do that. All right? So number two is prayer. So we're going to build the practice. We're going to cultivate the practice of service. We're going to build into our lives the practice of prayer. Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And when you pray... You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Sound familiar? All the same things apply. Okay. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray... Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray. And then he recites the Lord's Prayer, which we all know. We all learn that as kids, right? Or you can read it if you don't. We'll get back to that in a minute. Here's what I want you to see. Again, he's saying when you pray, it's for him. It's for his reward. And I remind you, it's these same internal rewards. It's him building in us these eight values. 
Now, there's two things, though, that he says here that are interesting. The first one is this. Uh, where is it? Verse 7. When you pray, don't use vain reputation, uh, repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Now, I'm going to expand this a little bit. Uh, maybe it's not vain repetitions, but we can, and this may be something that us charismatics are really good at, we can get hung up on the right words. You know, you got to pray the right words. you got to say the right thing when you pray, or God won't do it. Oh, you didn't say that right, right? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what he's saying is, look, when you pray, don't do it for them, do it for me. I'm after heart exchange. I'm not after a formula. And we can pray as formulaic as anyone else. It always baffles me when people go, well, I don't know how to pray. I, do you know how to talk? Can you express yourself? I know you can express yourself. Just do that with God. That's prayer. Any questions? Everything else is performance. I got to say it just for now. I'm not saying we don't craft prayers. I love crafting prayers. I love praying the word. We ought to pray the word because it's his language. So we get that out. We pray that back to him. But I get to say it the way I want. I don't talk different because I'm praying than I do uh, when I'm just talking. I just talk to God. He just wants our heart exchange. He doesn't want a formula. So we want to be careful that we don't drift into, as they say, praying with vain repetitions or praying the right way or saying this just right or, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, I don't know, I'm sorry. I, all these phrases are coming through my head uh, that I don't want to say because I'll be m making fun of people and I should not do that. <laughs> but, but you know them, you know. You get hung up. Let's just be real, all right? So that's the first thing is we're not getting into praying for religious performance. We're just sharing our heart. And the second one is this. Um, for your father knows the things. Uh, it says, don't be, uh, don't be like them because your father knows the things you have need of before you ask. Well, then why am I asking, God? If you already know, why am I asking? So prayer isn't about giving God information. Uh, although we do that sometimes, don't we? Uh, and again, it's not about performance. What it's about is a partnership. Think about this. It's, a, it's about a partnership. God's saying, look, I already know what you want. I already know what you need. I know what you want isn't what you need. I'm going to give you what you need instead of what you want. I already know all that. I just want you to interact with me. I want you to partner with me. I want to do this together. Uh, I can't give you what you need if you don't partner with me. Right? And so he brings prayer back to a heart issue, not a performance issue. And what I mean by that is sometimes I feel like, you know, if I pray enough about this thing, it'll happen. And maybe it didn't happen because I prayed 30 minutes and it was a 45-minute thing. <laughs> and I just, that extra 15 minutes would have got me there, you know. Now, that's performance thinking. You guys don't do that, right? Instead of just going, I'm partnering with God, and I'm going to pray as often as those things on my heart until I feel like I'm done. And I'm just getting, then I'll wait and see what God does. So prayer is a partnership. And then he gets into the Lord's Prayer. And again, these are, this is not uh, God saying, pray this prayer every day and that's it, you're done. It only takes five minutes and that's all the prayer you need. Uh, it's an example. It's a type of prayer. In fact, it's five types of prayer. And so let's look at these, uh, these types of prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's worship. It's, it's a good place to start. I love that he starts there. We enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So we start with worship. That's what we're doing this morning, just worshiping God. That's a form of prayer. should do that. should work that into your practice of prayer. The second one we'll call intercession. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Aunt Betty Lou has this problem. Lord, uh, help her. Your kingdom come, your will be done in that situation. Now, I do want to note it's your kingdom come, not do what I say. Just saying. Uh, our prayer in intercession should be focused on the kingdom of God intervening on earth. Now, we know uh, all kinds of good things are in the kingdom. There's healing, deliverance, and freedom, and stuff like that. So we can pray those things. But we're praying 
for his kingdom to impact our needs here on earth. Simple, intercession. Uh, the next one, supplication. Give us this day our daily bread. This, again, broadly, Lord, now it's time for me to focus on things I need. Lord, I need a job. Lord, I need a car. Lord, I need whatever. Please give me this. Thank you. That's valid prayer. It's a type of prayer. And then the next one, uh, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, that is repentance. Now, you should pray repentance prayers as often as you sin. Right? I don't wait for my prayer time. When I've noticed that I've sinned, I kind of like to just stop and have a prayer time right then. God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That was wrong. I repent. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Yeah? Just repentance. And then finally, um, the last one, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us for the evil one. Just prayers for protection. Now, again, He's talking about protection from evil, not just, uh, you know, Lord, help grandma and grandpa to drive safe, which, you know, for God's sake, pray that. But, uh, but he's talking about protection from evil, from temptation. So it's preemptive. Lord, keep me from temptation. Keep me from the evil one, Lord. Uh, you know, I'm going into this situation. and uh, It could really easily become an argument. Lord, keep me from agreeing with the enemy. Help me to have your heart in this. It's just prayers for protection from evil so that we can represent him well. Does that make sense? All right. So these are just patterns. There's five different ways you can pray. These are all going to come up in your life. You can build these into your life as practices, and they will cultivate the eight values that we're working on. All right? Number three. Uh, now we're getting more serious. Forgiveness. Verses 14 and 15. Just want to point out, this is Jesus. This is not me. I'd have done it different. But he didn't because he's just that good. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Does this in any way sound optional to you? Yeah. That's a tough one, isn't it? Forgiveness is something we need to practice because sometimes it's hard. And it, it's not optional. And I, I want to see why it's not optional. One, the big reason is because Jesus forgave us everything and requires us to forgive everything. Now, here's why it's not optional. In Matthew 18, the, he tells a parable of the unforgiving servant. And you remember this. Peter uh, thinking he's being generous, says, hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive people? And I'm pretty sure he's looking at James and John because, you know, Peter and John had a thing going on. He goes, even seven times? And, and which, you know, that's pretty awesome, all right? I'm, I'll, I'm willing to forgive this guy seven times. You know Jesus' answer, no, no, 70 times seven, and that's every day. In other words, just keep doing it every time he needs it. And then he goes, let me tell you a parable. And he tells him a parable about a guy who owed like millions of dollars and was forgiven. And he goes out and he finds a guy who owes him like eight bucks and he grabs him by the neck and says, pay me what you owe me. And he won't do it. And he has him thrown into debtor's prison. And uh, the guy who forgave him the million goes, you wicked servant. We're gonna and here's what happens. He gets thrown into prison. He says, you're going to stay there until you pay every penny. And he says... He was turned over to the tormentors. And here's the really scary verse. It ends with, so will your father do to you if you don't forgive from your heart. That should, that should get you right nervous. Yeah? And so here's what's going on here, guys. I talked to you last week. Remember we were talking about anger. And Jesus said, uh, reconcile with your brother on the way lest he turn you over to judge, the judge puts you in jail, and I tell you, you won't get out until you pay every penny. Remember I said there's a cost to anger. There's always a cost to anger. This is part of that cost. Unforgiveness, of course, goes with anger. Unforgiveness opens opportunity for tormentors. It's very clear in Matthew 18. He will turn you over to tormentors. Now, 
I am not saying, be, let me be very clear, and for those of you who are listening online and want to quote me later and make websites about me, um, I am uh, not saying Jesus torments us or Jesus initiates torment. He doesn't do that. We set ourselves up for it. He says, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive. In other words, the accuser of the brethren, the tormentors come and go, hey, they didn't forgive. I want to torment them. And Jesus goes, I'll, I'll turn them over to you. You're right. They didn't forgive. They're yours. He doesn't do it. We do it when we don't forgive. Let me tell you a story. I've told this story. I know I've told this several times, so, but there might be some that haven't heard it. It's such a good illustration of how this principle works. So I'm praying for a lady, and she has a pain in her wrist. And I'm praying for her, and I'm hearing in my spirit, it's demonic, uh, and it's unforgiveness. And I go, I don't want to say that. Because <laughs> I might be wrong. Because you don't always hear right. So, but I have a trick. So I'm praying for her, and I'm praying the spirit of her wrist. And I ask her, uh, is it getting better or worse? Not just is it getting better. Is it getting better or worse? Because I know a lot of times if you're praying for someone and they have devils, the pain will get worse because it's just annoying the devils that you're praying for them. Okay? So I'm annoying the devil as much as I can and asking her, and she goes, oh, it's, getting, it's a lot worse. I go, okay. So, well, it's demonic. Here's the deal. Who haven't you forgiven? And she immediately, and it took her two seconds, told me who it was. Didn't have to think about it. It's right there. I said, okay. So I opened up the Bible. I show her Matthew 18. I said, I said, you've opened yourself up to the tormentors. Do you want to forgive that person? She goes, yeah, I believe I will. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so I walk her, you know, she just prays. It's real easy. She just prays, forgives a person. I go, okay, pain, go in the name of Jesus, and it goes. You understand? Now, it's not always that easy. That's a great illustration because it was super easy. It only took a couple minutes. But what torment are we suffering just because we want to hang on to our unforgiveness? I don't know. That's up to the tormentor. I personally am very selfish about forgiveness. I don't care about you. I care about me. <laughs> I will forgive you because I don't want to be tormented. Got it? Now, here's the thing. Here's why... This is a practice that we have to work on because the degree of offense doesn't change the principle. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's say someone is rude to you. Do you have to forgive them? You read the Bible? Yeah. If you want to be right with Jesus, you have to forgive them, right? Let's say someone kidnaps your child and brutally murders them. Do you have to forgive them? Right, after you kill them back. Here's what I want you to see. The principle has not changed. Just the degree has changed. In the first one, you're not too worried about forgiving somebody for being rude. I can probably do that in my own strength. The second one, I'm going to need Jesus. I'm going to need grace. I'm going to need his spirit to help me do that one. But it's still not optional. That's heavy. Right? And so how do we get there? Well, we get there by degrees. We begin to practice forgiveness as a regular practice in our life, even the little things, so that when they get bigger, so that now it's not just someone was rude. Now they're talking about me online. Now they've lied, and I lost my job because they lied about me. Now they've, and as they go up, I'm going, well, I, I can handle that. I'm learning how to forgive. I can leave that with Jesus. Isn't that wild? That's what Jesus was like. Uh, I think Abigail was talking about it last week. The lamb that went to the slaughter and didn't open his mouth. Conforming us to his son. Sometimes it just gets real. All right, let's move on. Uh, everybody make sure you've forgiven me for, you know, whatever I just caused you there. All right. Number four, I'm gonna, this is specifically talking about fasting, but I'm going to generally group it under self-denial. Number four, the principle of self-denial, because at the end of the day, 
That's what fasting is. Fasting is just going, I'm going to deny my flesh. Uh, by the way, I just want to report that the licorice is out of my house now from last week. If you guys have dealt with that in the appropriate way. Um, I'm going to uh, deny myself my, my physical, in this case food, uh, to focus on my spiritual, uh, cultivating these eight values in my life. That's all fasting is. And a lot of times we'll fast and pray when we need a breakthrough or we're praying for someone to be healed. Those types of things. Jesus said there was a devil that only came out through fasting and prayer. It's a spiritual strengthening. There's, there's all those reasons. But basically we're talking about self-denial. There are times in our life where we're going to deny ourselves to uh, cultivate our inner man and we'll deny our outer man. doesn't mean we have to do it all the time. I'm not calling you to you know, become a monk or take a vow of poverty, you can figure out which times, but self-denial should be a practice in our lives. And let's go ahead and read it, Matthew 6, 16-18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to, be, uh, to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's exactly the same language we've been looking at in all these others, that we, we deny ourselves for him, for his reward, for that internal reward that's actually working on our inner man, not just to be seen as exercising self-denial, right? Now, here's what I want you to see, though. It's important that we practice self-denial because there is something cool at the end of it. Now, you'll see this in Matthew 16. I think we have that. We can pop it up. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, how many of you are disciples of Jesus? How many of you want to come after him? All right, good. This verse is for us. Anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, right? So this is a practice. This is a lifestyle for Christians. Self-denial has to be a part of our lives. It has to be a practice. And then he goes on. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the reward. That's the reward. There's life that we're going to find in self-denial that we wouldn't find in the other way. In other words, practicing self-denial is how we find his resurrection life. His resurrection life is conformity to Christ. It's these eight values. In other words, we deny ourselves so that we can cultivate these eight values in our lives and we begin to experience the resurrection life that Christ experienced. So that's the incentive not just self-denial so that people can see and God can see what a good Christian I am because I got rid of the licorice. Um, <laughs> it's so that I can build in myself these eight values that, and I begin to experience the life that goes with these eight values, the, the life of Christ, the joy and the peace and all those things, right? And so that's an incentive for me, self-denial uh, looks a lot more appealing when resurrection life is at the end of it. Amen? Yeah. So it's important that we catch that last word in that verse. All right, now, <clears throat> the last one, uh, generosity. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this just because um, Jesus did. And uh, anyway, we're going to talk about money. Are you ready? Hold on to your wallets. Don't let anybody. Okay. So, Five practices that we're cultivating, service, prayer, forgiveness, self-denial, and generosity, the general practice of generosity. Now, let's look at this. We're looking at verses 19 through 24. I will say this, verses 22 and 23, uh, it's easy to pull those out and interpret those more broadly. Uh, it talks about the lamp of the body, and you can think that that's just talking about anything we look at, but... Because it's squeezed in between one passage is clearly talking about money and another passage is clearly talking about money, I think he's still talking about money. So uh, we'll treat it that way as we go through here. 
All right. So he says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. This is the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore that light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of them will rule you, one or the other. Your choice. All right, so let's get into this. The first thing he says, and I want you to remind you what I said in the beginning, he is after our hearts, right? Not just our outward obedience, he's after our hearts. He's after conformity to Christ. The problem is, as we start to talk about generosity, if we look at verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It appears our hearts are linked to our money. Jesus said that, not me. Or maybe another way to look at it, maybe a better way to look at it is our money and what we do with our money will reveal where our heart is. Where we put our treasure, that's where our heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, um, by the way, uh, this is true. And uh, I've had people before tell me, you know, I'm having a hard time loving this person. I go invest a treasure in them. I think our treasures are our money and our time. So either give them some of your time, give them some of your money. You think back, people you've spent time and money on, they suddenly become important to you, don't they? You start caring about them. So I go, hey, invest in treasure. Then your heart will follow. Now you'll care about how they turn out. <laughs> right? You want to see some return on your investment. Anyway, he's after our hearts, and our hearts are linked to our money. And so money all of a sudden which is, honestly, money isn't a big deal uh, to God and shouldn't be to us, even though it is in the sense that, you know, we need it to, like, to eat and stuff. But it becomes a big deal as it reveals our heart because our hearts are a big deal. So they're linked. And so now it's a big deal. So he says, don't store up treasure on earth, store up treasure in heaven. And I want you to see that the way we do that is just by being generous. Treasure in heaven is just investing our time and money in others. I have some money, it's mine. If I use it to do what I want with it, it's still mine. If I invest in someone else, somehow that transfers it to my account in heaven. Then that's a treasure in heaven now because I'm focused on people, not on me and my money. I don't know how that works uh, with the bank of heaven. But that's how it works. These transfers go on all the time. So um, treasure in heaven is investing in others. And then he tells us there are two issues involved. The first is, he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. In other words, there's a focus issue involved. Now, because, as I said, this is squeezed between two passages clearly talking about money, I think he's still talking about money. I think he's talking about the lust of the eye that we read about in 1 John 2. The lust of flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. I think he's saying, if our eyes on all of our, the stuff we want and all the things and all the that and the other, the lust of the eye, uh, then that'll cause darkness in us. And he says that we're to choose generosity. So if, you know, if the, the lamp of the body is the eye, he's talking about our focus. And our focus should be on people. We should choose generosity over Self and stuff. Now, here's the thing. Uh, sometimes uh, we couch that in terms of blessing. And there's whole theologies on blessing. And uh, does God bless? Yes. Is God way more generous than you or I? Yes. He is super awesome generous. He will be generous. But let's keep in mind... Uh, if we get focused on what he can give us, then perhaps our eye is bad. Our eye is more to be focused on 
investing in the kingdom, which is investing in people. In other words, he's just saying there's a focus issue. Are you focused on people or are you focused on God's blessing for you? Now, I don't have a problem asking God to bless. I don't have a problem with receiving that. I think what's important is that we remember that his primary goal is what? Heart. Conformity to his son. That is the greatest blessing. So when I'm going, God, bless me, and I'm thinking a new car and a new house, God's going, I will. And he's thinking, refine me and make me like Jesus. If I don't understand that, I'm going to think I'm not getting my prayer answered. You understand what's going on? So there's a focus issue. Uh, what's the focus? Is our focus on being a blessing and focus on others, or is our focus on just being blessed ourselves? That's where he's talking about the eye. And the other one is uh, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. So there's a faith issue, self-reliance versus trusting God. Am I going to rely on taking care of me, or am I going to believe that God will take care of me? That is essentially all the tithe is about. God does not need your money. In fact, he gave you your money. It's like your parents wanting, you know, their allowance back because they're tight. Uh, you know, doesn't happen. Uh, God doesn't need your money. He needs your trust. He gives you the money so that you can learn trust because he wants your trust. He wants your faith, right? That's all the tithe is about. So let's look at a couple passages on money, and then we'll wrap this up because I, I really want you to get that this is about heart. And I'm going to say something that's going to freak you out, uh, but it'll be fun. It'll be a fun freak out, okay? All right, Luke 16, 9 through 11, he says, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. What? Wait a minute. I thought I was supposed to use this to get stuff. No, no, no. It's not to get stuff. Use it to make friends with yourself. Spend it on other people. Be generous with it. Go on and make friends with that money I gave you. This is, this is God speaking here. Make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. I love that he uses the term everlasting. Sounds like treasures in heaven, doesn't it? He who is faithful in what is least, what do you think is least? Money. Understand that. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. So, again, it's a test. What do you do with money? That'll show me where your heart is so I can give you bigger stuff. And he who is unjust in one of his least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? God's saying, if you can't handle money, how are you going to handle the really good stuff I want to give you? Begs the question, what are true riches, right? I think this. I think true riches are the power and authority that God wants to give us when we have been conformed to Christ through developing these eight values in our life. I think that's true riches. Yeah, we'll start with money. Just see if you'll trust me in that. But what I'd like to do is develop these eight values in your life, conform you to my son Jesus, and then give you the power and authority that he walked in. How would that be? Or would you rather just have money? You with me? That's what he's saying. True riches. True riches in the kingdom. They pave streets with money. That's not it. That's not the true riches. Right? The true riches are Christ-likeness. Let me put it this way. Um, how many of you believe God for miracles sometimes? Good. Awesome. I want to be a church that does that. How good are we going to be at believing God for supernatural miracles if we can't even believe God for natural provision? You understand how money is the starting point. We just got to believe that God will do what he said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he tells us what he'll do. This is the part where I'm going to freak you out. But I say that this I say, this is Paul. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Do what you want. Give a little, give a lot. You'll reap according to what you sow. Very simple principle. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, 
In the Old Testament, it was an obedience issue. You gave this much at this time of all these things. Now, Paul's going, just give what's in your heart. It's a heart issue now. We've, remember, we moved from the Old Testament outward to the New Testament heart. He says, uh, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give of necessity. Here, here you go. You ready to be freaked out? This is a pastor. I don't care if you tithe or not. I don't look. I don't look. Be generous. I'm done. That's what the Bible says. That's what the New Testament says. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. You want to be stingy? Be stingy. That's between you and God. I don't care. I'm not looking for you to take care of me. <laughs> I'm looking for God to take care of me. I'm looking for God to take care of us. All right. Keep it if you want to keep it. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, just in case you're thinking, all right, I will. Uh, <laughs> Let me just tell you what God is able to do here in case you want to reconsider. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you that you may always have, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. That's two things. What God's saying is that he, Paul's going, you know, give as you want in your heart. Don't do it out of necessity. Don't do it begrudgingly. But I want you to know that God's able to give you both everything you need and extra for good works. And then he puts it another way, down in verse 10. He says, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Again, seed to the sower is stuff for good works. Bread for food is everything you need. And multiply the seed you have sown. By the way, if he gives you seed money to sow, and bread money to eat, and you spend it all on yourself, uh, nothing gets sown and nothing gets multiplied. Just a thought. Okay? But again, so sparingly, so bountifully between you and God. Here's what I wanted to get to. He who uh, supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Being generous doesn't just cause us to receive things from God. It increases the fruits of our righteousness. It increases the eight values in our heart. Developing a generous heart increases fruits of righteousness. I put three verses in your notes there that talk about the fruit of righteousness. If you want to just go do your own study, I'm not going to reference them right now. So, again, it's not just about money. It's about our hearts. I want the increase in the fruits of righteousness. So I'm trying to learn to practice service and prayer and forgiveness and self-denial and generosity so that I can be conformed to Jesus by having these eight values developed in my life so that I can begin to walk in his power and authority so that the world is impacted by the church. I think that's the plan. You with me? All right. Does this make sense to you? All right. You understand why the Beatitudes are such a big deal. And he's telling us how to do this. So here's what I want to do. Let's have the band up. we got about 15 minutes. I, and, and Rachel, you might want to grab a mic and join me. Um, while the band's getting ready, I was feeling... Now, understand, uh, God doesn't separate... Gener, gen, blah, 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 generations or genders or races, uh, that's what the devil does. Uh, we don't do that. And so when he, uh, you know, acts as he pours out revival on all flesh, and then he goes and he lists all the different types, men, women, young, old, poor, rich, he doesn't care. Uh, so when I designate a demographic like I'm fixing to do, it's not because God's doing something special. This is for all of us. But I really felt like today God wanted to focus on, um, and I got four of you up here, I think, so I can't uh, use them. Uh, I'm thinking ages between like 12 and mid-20s. Uh, if that's you, 
I want to encourage you to come up here uh, as we, everybody else is going to stand up and worship and we'll be looking at you. Um, but I want to pray for you guys. I just felt like God wanted to pray for that age group. So feel free. Come on up. You don't have to. I won't make you. Uh, but I'm strongly encouraging you because I think God wants to do something. So if you're between like 12 and mid-20s, come on up. Um, what, I, what I'm feeling like is, well, I'll, I'll let you get all up here and then I'll tell you what I'm thinking. And I, and I got Rachel here just in case she's thinking anything too because if God says stuff to her and you guys can you can be worshiping you can be praying for these guys uh, you can be playing a game on your phone whatever works for you probably the first two are better all right go ahead and up, yeah you can have the middle up here make room come on up come on up <laughs> all right don't be shy there's room on this side guys so here's what I'm feeling this is for all of us but wow, I feel I like this is specifically group. on your generation I felt like God was saying uh, to pray for you guys because he wants you to grow up uh, deeply committed to the Sermon on the Mount modeling the principles in the Sermon on the Mount not falling for the traps of the fear of man and the performance stuff and all that. I just feel like there's something on your generation. He wants to make you a Sermon on the Mount generation. He wants you to grow up and going, guys, this is just how we do church. It's the best sermon ever preached because Jesus, the perfect man, preached it. And so I want to pray for you guys and I want to encourage you to, uh, to live in the Sermon on the Mount for a while to make that a, a, a regular study, to make that a, a point of meditation, to believe I can do this, I can, I can, I can do this, uh, and to start young. That's, that's kind of just what I have. So I, I want to begin to pray for you as we go into worship. And Rachel, if you have anything, you can share that too. Uh, and again, you guys just be praying for them. And you guys just be focusing on Jesus. Lord, I pray. God, I ask for a generation that grows up not being fooled by the world. I ask for a generation that sees all this stuff and just goes, no. I want Jesus. I want the character of God. I want the Spirit of God alive in me. I want the values of Jesus I'm going to learn the culture and values of the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this earth. Lord, I ask right now, I don't know if totally why you have them up here. I ask you to encounter anyone in this generation who wants to be a sermon on the mount, young man or young woman. I pray you'd encounter them. You give them understanding give them grace. You'd empower them by your spirit to do it. We can none of us do it without you, Jesus. At a young age, they would pursue these things. I just want to say to our young women, this is going to sound really weird our young virgins you guys are beautiful there's a beauty in your virginity we talk about the virgins in the Bible Jesus refers to them as virgins you're beautiful hold on to that it's a gift hold on to it if you already blown it repent and get it back there's a beauty in your virginity I saw it on you guys the other night the world is telling you to give it up. I repent for my generation to you guys because we gave it up. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There's no life in it. There's no life in it. The world is telling you that there's shame in your virginity. There's not. There's a beauty in it. 
There's an innocence that protects you. Young men, there's an innocence that protects you in your virginity. There's an innocence and a beauty that protects your hearts. It's in these beatitudes. That's what you shoot for. The world goes, go for the porn, go for the sex, go for the drugs and the rock and roll. These beatitudes say, go for Jesus. And they'll protect you in every area of your life. Hey, I get it. The struggle is real. <laughs> you guys, it, come, it was coming at me a little bit. You know, your body alone will do it to you. But it is coming at me a little bit in the 70s. But it's coming at you guys hardcore. You can't scroll through a social media site. If that's a struggle for you, get off it. There ain't nothing there for you. There ain't nothing there for you. I saw a picture of a young woman from a prominent Christian family. She was a picture with other young women, and their underwear said, they were wearing underwear, and it said, did I consent? Did I say yes? And she's come out as a lesbian. And I knew that it's some portion, and I know her family, so I know what kind what she grew up in. Of course, I don't know all the details and all those things, but, and I knew that there was a fear in her heart towards men. This generation is trying to make you afraid of men. It's trying to make you afraid of sex. It's trying to make you young men afraid to ask a girl out on a date. Trying to tell you you're brutal, that you, you're, you're toxic. I'm telling you you're not. I'm telling you not. Ladies, don't be afraid of the guys. Guys, don't be afraid of the girls, but love and respect one another. That's what these Beatitudes are about. And I'm just going to hit this hard up because this is what this, your age, we're facing it too, guys. Older ladies, older men, come on. We're suddenly coming out like, oh man, I, this thing in my past is really, nope, let's just live in the now. I just feel God's fire on this, I'm sorry. You're beautiful as you are. You're beautiful as you are. And so I just wanna, so Lord, I'm just gonna come before you right now. And I'm pray for these guys, these young, these young 20-somethings, a couple of you are married, but getting married. God, I pray you keep them in their virginity. Keep them from the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Keep them in their purity, God. And if they mess up, they can come to you. They can come to you. It's okay. It's okay. We repent. Repentance is what brings us back to God. There's nothing you can do or have done or thinking that can't bring you back. God, I pray that you will tell every one of these young men what it means to be a young man. That they would know how to go after these five, these beatitudes, that it's not beyond them. And every young woman, Lord, that you would teach her what it's like to be a young woman in the kingdom of God. Not the kingdoms of this world. Not feminism. We gotta love one another. God designed two in the garden, one man and one woman. He made them male and female. He designed us to love and live together, brother and sister, man and wife. So Holy Spirit, will you begin, and these that are here, instructing them in what it's like to be a man and a woman. Lord, help us as those who've already gone down the line to be there for them, to help them in it. It's not going to always be easy or always be fair or always look clear, but you will teach us. Holy Spirit, fall on them. Fill them with a sense of purpose and destiny. God, everyone in this room, a purpose and destiny in you, and it's Jesus. Sometimes I get asked, what do you learn in this book, Rachel? And I said the same thing I learn in every book. Come up leaning on my beloved being conformed to Christ. Our whole journey, this whole journey is being conformed to Christ. Romans 8, 29. To be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Thank you, God. Thank you for these young people. <laughs> Thank you so much for them, God. Thank you for them, God surround them with your songs of deliverance. 
One last thing, then we're going to worship. Um, I feel like the Lord's saying to you, lift your heads up. Lift up yes. your heads. Lift up yes. your heads. You got nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. But be an example. If you will embrace humility and honor, God will give you tremendous confidence and joy and peace. And He'll just strengthen you. There will be uh, there will be a confidence as you just embrace His principles. He will do it. You guys Hallelujah. lift your heads. You can be examples. Yes, lift your heads. Hallelujah. So uh, it's it's we're at 11.45. If you need to go, you're free to go. I want to go into worship. I want you guys just to be able to interact with God in worship for a few minutes. When you're done, you can feel free to go. Let's just begin to worship. You guys just stay up here and worship and just let the Lord speak to you.